Good morning again. Hey, why don't you grab your Bibles with me this morning and uh, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew as we continue in our sermon series, The King and His Kingdom. Today we make our way into Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. So why don't you turn there with me? Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. You can uh, grab a pew Bible in the pew in front of you. You can grab your own Bible or you can follow along on the screen behind me. Our title for our sermon this morning is The Disciples' Burden, as we take a look at worship, the worship of the follower of Christ, our secret service. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. Let's pray, and then we'll dive right in. Father, it's a privilege for us to be here together, to gather as followers of your Son, Jesus, who is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is our great God and Savior and Messiah. Lord, it is a privilege to turn and to look at this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, where you have so much to say, so much to teach us about genuine righteousness, about what it looks like to be an authentic follower of the King in every aspect and area of our hearts and lives. And, and now as we look at our, our burden, this responsibility that we have to worship you, our great God and King, through the giving of our money, through uh, the prayers that we offer, and through even the fasting that we undertake. Lord, we want our worship to be well-pleasing to you. And so help us now as we turn to your word to look at how to do it. We ask it in the name of Jesus and God's people said, amen. Well, most of us have uh, heard of the federal law agency known as the Secret Service. The Secret Service. Of course, we've heard of the Secret Service before, and most of us, rightly so, associate them with an image like the one on the screen behind me. Uh, Men in black suits with big guns that follow around the president and other dignitaries to provide protection for those like that in our country. The Secret Service. They're called the Secret Service for a reason, right? Because most of what they do goes unknown, undetected, unnoticed, and under the radar. In fact, if you think about it, the only time that we really hear about the Secret Service is when they've done something wrong, right? When they've made a mistake, that's when we hear about the Secret Service. Because their service, their Secret Service, is successful if it remains a secret. It's a success if they're not in the news. However, it is a failure when their service is, to borrow a line from Jesus, seen by men. So, as we make our way into the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6 today, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we're, we're going to hear him tell us that our service to God as Christians that our service to the great king as followers of Jesus is to be done like that of a secret service agent. That is, it is to be done in secret. He's going to say that our service is a success if we do it in secret out of a heart seeking to please God. He's also going to tell us that our service to him is a failure if we do it in public in order to be seen by men. So in this little section, starting in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is going to teach us about the disciples' burden. That is our responsibility, our private worship unto the Lord in three areas. In verses 1 through 4, he's going to teach us about the burden of giving. 
in verses 5 through 15, he's going to teach us about the burden of prayer. And then to end this section, in verses 16 through 18, we will see the burden or responsibility of fasting. Since we recently did a whole sermon on fasting, we will focus our efforts this morning on giving in 1 through 4 and on prayer in verses 5 through 18. If you have your Bibles out, I'd like for you to follow along. We're just going to read the section in its entirety, and then we'll, we'll, we'll make our way through the text. So, uh, Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Be careful, Jesus says, not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Verse 5, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand praying in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. That is a reading of God's holy and inspired word. Well, let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 6, as Jesus begins with a worship warning with a warning about worship. He begins by laying down the guiding principle in verse 1, really for the entire section. Verse 1, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. As Jesus begins this section in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 6, he addresses the wrong motives of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious leaders of the day. They were driven, Jesus says, by the applause of men, not the applause of God. So Jesus warns his followers, he warns us not to be like them, not to do what they do. 
he brings up here, I think, a fundamental point. That is the practice of our righteousness, our, the spiritual disciplines, the, the things that we do to serve God and to worship God. Our worship is primarily between us and God, between us and the Lord, and must be motivated by a love for him and a desire to serve him. If our worship, if our religious deeds are driven by the applause of men to be noticed by others, Jesus says, and he will say it repeatedly, you have your reward in full. In other words, you're looking for the applause of men, that's all you're going to get. Kenneth Krell says it this way. He says this of our worship. God looks at the heart before the hand. I like that. God looks at the heart, our motive before he looks at what we do in our service to him. So Jesus lays forth this worship warning, and it, it really uh, it goes through, if you will. It kind of works its way out through the rest of his teaching. So we begin with the spiritual discipline then in verse 2 of giving. Verses 2 through 4, worship through giving. It's significant to me that Jesus begins his teaching on a, on a disciple's worship with the spiritual discipline of giving. He could have started with fasting. He could have started with prayer. He could have started with meditation. He could have started with a whole host of spiritual activities or disciplines, all of which would have been helpful. But Jesus begins with giving. He begins with generosity. I think It's important. I think he does it for a reason. I've heard someone uh, say once, it's been said that God doesn't have your heart until he has your wallet. God doesn't have your heart until he has your wallet. And I think Jesus begins with the discipline of giving for that exact reason. So notice in verse 2, he begins by describing what the hypocrites, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day, what they were doing, their wrong way of giving and their wrong motive of giving. Verse 2. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. See, when the Jewish priests would collect funds for some particular occasion, oftentimes it would be a collection for benevolence. What they would do is starting in the, in the temple there in Jerusalem is they would take their trumpets and they were, they would blow their horns to announce to everyone that it was now time to take the offering. It was now time for a, a special offering, a special collection for some particular need, including benevolence. And likely then they would uh, continue to parade through the, the streets of Jerusalem to announce that it was now time to give to those who, in need, who, who would be in need. Now, this would be a real opportunity for those who wanted to show that they were generous, right? It would be a, an opportune time if you wanted to let everyone know that you were a generous guy or that you were a generous girl. This was your moment. It was your opportunity to give in such a way that would draw attention to the fact that you were giving, Jesus tells us here, then, not to give in a way like that. Not to give in a way that draws attention to ourself. And that if our giving is motivated by the applause of man or being recognized for our giving, then once again, we have received our reward in full. That's all we're going to get. The temporary praise of man rather than the eternal reward of God. So he says, this is how not to do it. 
But then, starting in verse 3 and running into verse 4, he says, this is how you should do it, right? You have the negative example and you have the positive example. Verse 3, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And what happens when we do it that way? Jesus says, then your father who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Now, let me just point out something. It's kind of obvious, but significant. Notice the way that Jesus begins in verse 3, when he talks about the discipline of generosity and giving. Notice what he says. But when you give, but when you give, does he say, but if you give? He does not say that. He says, but When you give. What is Jesus saying here about the relationship between generosity and a follower of Christ? It's not if you give, it's when you give. Jesus assumes that his followers will be generous with their money. And that includes me, and that includes you. It's been said that Christians use three books for worship. Three books for worship. We worship with our Bible. We worship with our hymn book, and we worship with our checkbook. Our Bible, our hymn book, and our checkbook. Friends, is that true of you? Do you worship with those three books? Jesus says it's not if we give, it's when we give. Not only that, but he says when we give, don't do it in a way to draw attention to yourself. right? Don't don't do it to show off. Don't do it to show how generous you are. Do it with the right motive. And what is the right motivation? The right motivation is to please our Heavenly Father. He sees what we do in secret, and He rewards us in full. So, brothers and sisters, three questions come to mind from verses 2 through 4. First, do you give? Second, why do you give? And third, how do you give? So question number one, do you give? Is giving both to the local church, to gospel-centered organizations, to people, friends, neighbors, and strangers that are in need. Is generosity, is financial giving a regular part of your worship unto the Lord? Is it a part of what you do? Do you have any idea what percentage that you give annually to the church and to others compared to, say, what you spend on your cable bill? Do you have any idea how much you spend on entertainment versus how much you give to those who are in need or to support the Lord's work? Check it out. You might find it interesting. Or maybe how much you pay, say, for your four smartphones and the contracts that are associated with that. How much do we spend on an annual basis for our iPhones or for our Samsung Galaxies? And I have one. How much do we spend on that versus how much we give to God's work in the world. Later, Jesus is going to tell us, next week we're going to see that he says that where your heart is, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Because how we use our funds is indicative of what we love. So friends, we need to ask ourselves a, a question. How much do we care about God's program and his purposes and his kingdom and his church? How much do we care about it? One way, one way we can know is by looking at your giving statement, by our generosity. 
So not only do we give, but number two, why do we give? Jesus doesn't just address the practice of giving. See, the hypocrites and the Pharisees, did they give? They gave. They gave generously, probably some of them, but they are condemned in this section. It's not just the habit of being generous, but why are we being generous? So Christian, let me ask you, what drives your generosity? When you give to the local church, when you give to your friends and neighbors in need, when you write the check to Project Amazon, if you will, to a missions agency, why do you do that? Because Jesus goes beyond the practice and he looks at our heart. What drives us? Do we do, we do it as Christians out of a sense of obligation just because we know that we should? Do we do it because we want to be known as a generous person or maybe just a, a good Christian? Do we do it for those reasons or do we genuinely want to serve the Lord and his work in the world through the local church and other means? In other words, is our, is our giving primarily God-word or is it man-word? Not only do we give and why do we give, but how do we give? How do we give? Do we give in the most noticeable way or the least noticeable way? Is our giving uh, ostentatious or is it not obvious? When the offering plates are, are passed, do we kind of cough loudly <coughs> and jingle around the money we have in our pockets to demonstrate that we're, we're giving? Or do we do it in a way so that our left hand doesn't know what our right hand is doing? Do we give simply because we want to be known as a giver so that our name will be on a building or on a plaque or on a brick or on a list of donations for all to see? See, Jesus, as he looks at these disciplines, looks not only at what we do, but why we do it and how we do it. So, could Jesus say of you as his follower, when you give, or does he say if you give? He turns from the practice of giving to the practice of prayer. And this is the longest section in verses 1 through 18, so we will spend the bulk of our time here. Worship through prayer. Jesus, as he does with giving, begins his teaching on the practice of prayer with how not to pray in verse 5. Take a look at the text, if you will. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on, on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Not to belabor the point, but we need to notice again, Jesus doesn't say, if you pray. He says, when you pray. Because Jesus assumes that his followers pray. That it's a regular part of our daily spiritual life. See, the hypocrites, not only do they blow trumpets in the synagogues, but they parade around with public prayer to be seen by others. Instead of making prayer between them and God primarily, they made it a show, an act to be seen by people. And in reality, who are they directing their prayers to? Who were they directing their prayers to? They were directing their prayers to those who were hearing them, rather than to God. So, Jesus says, this is not how you should pray, verse 5. And then again, he follows it up with how we should pray in verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. 
Notice the contrast between being seen on the street corners and praying to our God who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. So what Jesus is saying is this. Instead of public prayer, whose purpose is the praise of people, he says that that prayer is primarily a private petitioning whose purpose is being in the presence of Papa God, if you will. That's what prayer is all about. And this kind of prayer, that kind of prayer, Jesus says, God rewards. In verses 7 and 8, Jesus again, he, he turns to another wrong way to pray. He says, don't pray like these, these Jewish leaders. Don't pray to be seen by men, but go in your prayer closet and pray. And then he, he adds another way. Well, there's another way that we shouldn't pray, and it's not the, the Jewish uh, uh, fallacy of prayer here. It's, it's the pagan fallacy of prayer. Notice what he says in verse 7. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father... Now let this sink in. It gets me every time. Do not be like them. Why? For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Friends, that is incredible. It is incredible to me. He says, friends, don't keep on saying the same things over and over and over again, thinking that simply because you're wasting air and breath that God will hear you. No, before you come, before, before you even get on your knees to pray, before you fold your hands, before you close your eyes to ask me about something, I know it. I know what you need. It's incredible. Well, he's addressed the practice of prayer. This is how we should pray. But what should we pray, right? He says, don't pray this way to be seen in public. Do pray in private so that your heavenly Father sees you. And don't pray like pagans do, just saying it over and over again. So he's, he's told us what prayer looks like, but what are we supposed to pray? Like, what is the content of our praying supposed to be? Well, Jesus, thankfully, gives us a pattern to emulate, a pattern to follow. It's commonly called the Lord's Prayer. I really like calling it the Disciples' Prayer, because if you'll notice, there are several things that Jesus prays that he doesn't need to pray. This is not his prayer for himself. This is his model for who? For us, right? It's the disciples' prayer. So notice, he introduces it in verse 9. This, then, is how you should pray. Now, by saying this, again, he's, he's telling us that he wants, to see, he wants us to use this as a model. It's a model prayer. It's not necessarily a prayer simply to be repeated uh, mindlessly by rote. Now, I don't know if you ever played sports or were involved in saying the, the, the Lord's Prayer together. I recall ever since I was knee-high, right, playing in Little League Baseball and enjoying it very much. And I, I remember, let's put it this way, I don't ever remember from the time that I was little playing sports to the time that I uh, threw my last pitch or played my last basketball game in high school. There was never a game that we entered into that our teammates wouldn't hit a knee and say the Lord's Prayer together. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been there before? 
maybe it's just uh, unique to sports, but, but I have this indelible image in my mind of all of us getting together, the game's about to start, and the coach says, hit a knee, boys, let's pray. And we hit a knee, and we all say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And we say it as quickly as possible, for some reason, <laughs> and as uh, monotone, as, as, as in unison as possible, it's very monotone, and uh, we just say it as quickly as we can, and then we say amen, and we get up, and we're like, rah, 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 go get them team, right? Um, and to me, as I became a Christian, and then I started to read the Word, and, and, I, and I looked at this prayer, it just befuddles me that how ironic it is, how often I had prayed that, but I had no idea what I was praying. I mean, I had no idea what, I, what, that, what these words meant. It meant nothing to me. It was just blah, 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 blah. God help us win, right? That's what it was. So let me ask, are we supposed to pray this prayer in that way? I think that this is a model for us. Put it this way. I, I think that this is a skeleton around which we can build the muscles of our prayer life, right? It's not meant to be just babbled. Jesus is trying to teach us these are the things that make up our prayer life. And we can build around them. So just some observations about the prayer, and then we'll work our way through the prayer. Um, what we see here are six requests. We see that Jesus teaches us to ask God the Father for six things. There are six requests, six petitions, if you will. Um, three of them, they're, they're divided in half. The first three are about God, right? The first three are all about God, his glory, his interests, his kingdom, his purpose, his working in our, in, in our world. And then the, the next three are about us, right? Now, friends, let me ask you, is that meant to teach us something about the priorities that we should have in prayer? Does that teach us something about when we come to prayer, whose glory and whose name and whose purposes should be preeminent? Of course it does. The first three are about God. The second three are about us. The first three also, all of them really, are related to the kingdom of God. The first three deal with the coming kingdom. The last three are appeals in view of that coming kingdom. Each of them... Uh, are about the person and work of God and as it relates to us. So six requests, six petitions, and I've, just for fun, uh, used six Ps, alliteration. It hopefully is helpful to help us remember these six requests. Six Ps, I've borrowed them from John Phillips, his commentary, and from Keith Krell, and I kind of made them my own. So petition number one, we see it in verse six. The prayer begins this way with, the, the person of God, the first P, is God's person. So Jesus taught us to pray this way. Our Father in heaven, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So what do we see from the outset here about the person of God? The first request is about God's person. And we begin by seeing how we should address God. Friends, let me ask you. How we address God, what we call him, does that matter? Does it make a difference? Does it influence how we pray? How we address God? Of course it does. Jesus says, address God as your father. An image that 
we are all familiar with, the relationship between parent and child, father and son, father and daughter. He says, you can call God your father. It's significant. In the Old Testament, God was portrayed as a father, but it was more a corporate portrayal. Here Jesus says, Christian, you can come to God as one of your, ch- as, as one of your child. Children come to you. They come to you. They toddle up to you and they say, Dad, I, can I have a drink of water? They have a request and they're coming to their father. That's the image that he uses. But notice, it's, there, there's an there's an intimacy here, right? Our father, he uses the, the Greek word there that could be akin to, to kind of daddy for us. It's not exactly that, but he uses the Greek term that is more intimate. It's, it's, it speaks of a relationship that we can have with God. But notice, our father, what does Jesus tell us about our father here? Where does he live or his being exist in? Our father in where? Heaven. Our father in heaven In other words, Jesus wants us to know that when we approach God as our heavenly Father, we shouldn't come um, too nonchalantly, right? We should remember that, yes, He is our heavenly Father, but He is in heaven. That is, He is altogether different than we are. He is holy. He is infinite. He is powerful. He is unlike us, perfectly moral, absolutely powerful, right? So when we come to God, there is an intimacy that we can have, but that we recognize that, that he is our father, but he is, as the angels say in Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy. He is to be hallowed. So he says, when we recognize that God is our father and he lives in heaven, what is our request? Well, our request is that his name be hallowed, which simply means honored, feared, revered. So the first request is that, Father, we want your name your person to be honored. We want people everywhere, including us, to fear you and to revere you. Hallowed be thy name. There's a story that I came across. It's a wonderful story told by David Eisenhower. You may recognize that last name because he is the son of the former president, Dwight Eisenhower. And in one of his books, he told about a story uh, that he recalls about his father from childhood. He recalls that uh, a moment that after World War II, his father was at a military base. And they were in like a room. And then the curtains were drawn and the doors were open. And his father stepped out on the balcony of this military base. And he was a little guy, you know. So he, all he knows is, this is daddy, right? This is my, this is my papa. This is daddy. But that in that moment, he watched his father step out of the, out of the room, and he, he, he says in his words, he saw 3,000 soldiers immediately snap to attention in the presence of this father figure in utter silence. And he writes in his book, it was in that moment that I realized that this man wasn't just my daddy. Like he, he was someone far greater. He was the president of the United States. And I think that's a great picture, right? Because is, is God our father? He is our father. We can come to him as a, as a child comes to, to his daddy, and yet we recognize that he's not just an earthly daddy, right? He is to be honored and revered and hallowed. So the first petition is, God, in our lives and in the life of, of all people, we want you to be honored and glorified and worshiped. The second petition is about the program of God. Not only is it about God's person, but we see God's program. Notice verse 10. 
the first half of it. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. The second request has to do with us asking that God's program on earth would be fulfilled. This idea of kingdom has a is sort of a dual nature in the New Testament. In the New Testament, God's kingdom is both a present reality that Jesus works through his church, uh, building his spiritual kingdom, but it is also a future literal reality in which Jesus will return to the earth, inaugurate a an earthly reign. So we pray then, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. God, advance your purposes in this world. But not only that, not only do we ask about God's program, but we ask about God's purposes. Notice, your kingdom come, but then what? Your will be done, right? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Have you ever thought about how the will of God is done in heaven? Just think about that for a second. When God says, Gabriel, come here, I've got a message for you. Does Gabriel just say, well, God, in in just a second, I've got something going on right now. Or, God, I really don't want to do that. So I'm going to go do my own thing. Is that how it works in heaven? No, no, right? In heaven, people, uh, beings, obey God joyfully. They obey God immediately. And they obey God fully. God's will is always done perfectly in heaven. And that is this third petition. God, we want your purpose to be done here on the earth. We want in our lives, our obedience to be like it's done in heaven. We want it to be done here on earth like it's done in heaven. So God, we want not only your program to advance, but we want your purposes in this world to advance. Number four, the fourth petition relates to God's provision. So notice, we got three petitions, and they all relate to God. Let me just pause and ask real fast. Is this where our prayers normally begin? Mine don't, most of the time. We often skip to the fourth petition, don't we? The fourth petition is for God's provision, right? For our needs, in verse 11. Jesus, that's number four for him, right? We have some things to learn. God's provision. Give us today our daily bread. So with this fourth request, we start to get in petitions that relate to us. Again, ironically, this is where we often begin. What does Jesus ask here? He says, disciple, ask God the Father to meet your daily needs. It's not our weekly bread. It's not our monthly bread. It's not our annual bread, but it's our what? Daily bread, right? In other words, this is your chief concern. You you have needs For today, and so pray for them. Friends, this is a wonderful thing that Jesus taught. Does he care about our needs? Yes, he does. Does he care about meeting them? Yes, he does. Does he care about providing for our needs? Yes, he does. Should we ask God for them? Yes, we should. However, most of us don't ask for our daily needs. We often ask for our daily greeds. But, Jesus says, recognize that God the Father is your ultimate provider. Isn't that interesting? Do we still have to work to have bread on the table? Yes, we do. Do you still have to do something? Yes, you do. But does that mean that you are your ultimate provider? No, it doesn't. Because we pray, give us this day our daily bread as we put on our boots and go to work, right? Petition number five, notice God's pardon God's pardon. And forgive us our debts. Language of sin often has a debt here, something we owe. 
and forgive us our debts. And let's not forget this last part, as we also have forgiven our debtors. So Jesus moves from asking God to meet our needs to asking God to forgive us of our sins. Friends, this is a glorious truth that Jesus teaches. We as Christians need the forgiveness of our sins. In a relationship with God, we as Christians still sin. And so we can come to him saying, God, I have sinned. Forgive me of my debts. And because we know if we are in Christ, Christ has forgiven all of our sins. So that when we come to our Father saying, God, I have messed up. Please forgive me of my sins. We know that the answer is already a resounding yes. Notice. Notice the connection. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. In other words, Jesus assumes that his followers will forgive people who wrong them. Do you see that? He assumes that that's the case. When we are wronged, we forgive. And so when we do wrong, we ask God to forgive us. Now skip ahead a little bit in your Bible to verses 14 and 15. I know we have one more petition, and we'll get there shortly. But what we get in verses 14 and 15 relates to this petition of God's pardon. It's almost as if uh, Jesus ends the prayer in verse 13, and then he adds a little P.S., It's just a little P.S. to the prayer in verses 14 and 15. And he expands on the thought of verse 12. As we also have forgiven our debtors. So here's the question. Here's the question. What if we don't forgive those who have harmed us as Christians? What if we don't do that? What if we are withholding forgiveness? Well, Jesus tells us, for if you forgive other people... When they sin against you, or your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Friends, let me be clear. He's not talking about earning our salvation by forgiving other people. This is fellowship with God that Jesus has in mind. He's talking about family relationships. And he tells us that if we forgive, if we as God's children refuse to forgive others then our Heavenly Father will refuse to forgive us relationally. It's as if he's going to say, you're not going to forgive that person when when they do that to you? Then I'm going to withhold fellowship from you to help you understand that you need to forgive your brother. So, we come then in verse 13 to the final request. And it's for God's protection. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. That's a good translation, the evil one. In this final request, Jesus teaches us to ask for God's spiritual protection, in particular from satanic temptation. So it's almost as if the prayer is ending. We recognize we're about to enter into the world once again from our prayer closets, from being on our, in our knees, and we recognize when we enter into the world, we have an enemy, and that enemy wants to tempt us. And to destroy us, right? Peter says, like a roaring lion prowling about, Satan seeks to devour the Christian. And so, recognizing that, we end our prayer by saying, God, protect us from the evil one. See, we don't just want to be forgiven of our sins, right? Jesus taught us, forgive us of our debts. We don't just, as Christians, want to be forgiven of our sins. We want to avoid sin altogether, right? So we pray, God, lead us not into temptation, right? So, as we think about wrapping this up, a commentator by the name of uh, Barclay, I think, puts a nice little bow 
on these last three requests. He says this. You can see it on the screen behind me. The second part of prayer, the part of which deals with our needs and necessities, is a marvelously wrought unity. It deals with three essential needs of man and three spheres of time within which man moves. Number one, first, it asks for bread, thereby asking that for uh, thereby asking for that which is necessary for the maintenance of life, and thereby bringing the needs of the present to the throne of grace. Second, it asks for forgiveness, thereby bringing the past into the presence of God and of God's forgiving grace. Third, it asks for help in temptation, thereby committing all the future into the hands of God. And I like what he says here. In these three brief petitions, we are taught to lay the present and the past and the future all before the footstool of the grace of God. That is spectacular. So friends, let's close by asking three applicational questions. And they're very similar to the ones we just talked about. Number one, do we pray? It's not if we pray, but when we pray. Is this something that we do regularly as a disciple of Christ? Secondly, why do we pray? Why do we pray? Are we seeking God in prayer? Are we seeking something else? Maybe the approval of man or maybe the accrual of God's gifts. It's so easy for us to seek God's fortune rather than to seek his face. We have to ask ourselves, as we come to God in prayer, do we really want God, or do we just simply want what he gives? In other words, do we seek his presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, or do we just want his presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S? Which do we want? And then third, how do we pray? In other words, do we use this prayer as a model? Do we start with petition number four and work our way down the list? Or do we emphasize all six as well? So, that is the Lord's Prayer. Better, that is the disciples' prayer. So here's a fitting way for us to to close our time. I'm going to ask that you stand with us together as we close. And we are going to pray this prayer together in the old King King James, because that's how most of us learned it. At least that's how I learned it. So we're going to end by praying the Lord's Prayer together. And we're going to pray that it's not the way that me and my friends prayed it growing up but with a fuller understanding of what it means. So let's bow together and let's pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And God's people said, Amen. See you next week, guys.